The scripture reading this morning will be from Romans 15, 4 through 6. Again, that's Romans 15, 4 through 6. And it reads, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of our endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus, with Christ Jesus, that, to get, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may now be seated. Good morning. I'm glad you're here. I see this crowd. I, I see a few holes in the in the pews, but for the most part, we have a good crowd, and I know this weather is uh, treacherous and wasn't easy for you today, but I'm glad you're here. I want to thank Brandon. Didn't he do a fantastic job leading singing this morning? Beautiful songs, and uh, Jerry, wonderful prayer. Thank you, Brother Courtney, for that, and I was glad to see my grandson up here reading scripture. It always makes me see good to see my kids participate. Jim Laws is our normal preacher, if you're visiting with us today. Jim Laws is our uh, our normal preacher that preaches here, but he is in St. Augustine, Texas today, and we'll be through Wednesday holding a meeting. If you weren't able to come this week, and I know a lot of you had to work and, and uh, different reasons you couldn't be here, and I understand it fully, but if you weren't here, I want you to know that, uh, that there was some great preaching that went on here in our gospel meeting, Brother Johnson from uh, Longview, K. Robert Johnson, and he'll be back in September when we have our forum. But the good thing about modern times is this. If you didn't come and you would like to be uh, uplifted with some good sermons, you can go online and, li- and listen to them. Uh, my favorite of all, and they were all great, but Monday night he did a sermon on redirecting our desires. And I thought that was about as good as, uh, as it gets because our desires sometimes are what take us away from what we need to be doing, and I just thought that was a very good sermon, so if you get a chance, you can go online and listen to those, and they were very good. Well, if you could tell by the scripture reading today in Romans 15, there it's talking about Old Testament events that happened in the past. We're not under the law, and uh, we fall from grace if we wanted to be, wouldn't we? We're not under the law, but it was a law. We're not under a patriarchal system, but those were things that happened in the past. God spoke to man directly. Uh, Adam and Abraham and people like that. He spoke to him and told him exactly what he wanted. And then he had a law system that was brought about through Moses, the great lawgiver and savior of the Jewish people. He brought them out of Egypt, and we know those stories. Well, we live under a new dispensation, don't we? The, uh, the Christian era and uh, the, uh, all that, all the other has been fulfilled. And so, but those stories are there. And, you know, if you look at the Old Testament versus the New Testament, one's real thick and the other's a little narrower. And there's 66 books in the Bible, 27 of those being found in the New Testament. The remainder are in the Old Testament. And as he read today in, in Romans 15, those stories are there for our benefit. There's good that we get out of them. And uh, invariably, and we're going to be looking at this aspect today, a lot of the physical stories of the Old Testament had spiritual ramification for the New Testament. And sometimes we call those antitypes, and we're going to be looking at that today. Well, if you would like to, um, you can turn your Bible to 2 Kings 
chapter 5, and that's what we're going to be studying for a little while this morning. Today, though, I want you to consider, we're going to be looking at some physical aspect of the Old Testament, but I want you to be thinking about a spiritual aspect of today. I want us to think about our salvation. Most of us in here have obeyed the gospel. We understand that we need to repent of our sins and confess his name and be have our sins washed away through baptism, and most of us have done that. There may be some here today that haven't, and if you haven't, then I'm glad you're here today because we're going to be talking about fundamental things there that would help you in this. But I want to talk about our salvation. I want to talk about how it came about. I want to talk about what it means to us, what cost it came at. The blessings that it has, the peace that it affords, the long-term influence it has on generations after us as well. If your salvation could be purchased, and it can't be, but if it could, what would it cost? What would it be worth? What would you pay for it? If salvation came by great ceremony, think about what I'm saying now. If salvation came by great ceremony and great ritual rites, would you participate in that? Would you wear those clothes or say those vows or do those things or go without this or uh, add this to it? You know, like we see in the world, there's a lot of ceremony in the world over salvation. What's your thoughts on that? All these things that I brought up, be thinking about those today, about your salvation. Be thinking about how it came about and these different aspects that we pointed out. We're going to look at an Old Testament example of a healing that relates to our salvation. And of course we're in, um, what did I say, in 2 Kings 5. Let me get there, please. Okay, I'm there, and we're going to be studying about a man named Naaman. Naaman was a Syrian. He was a commander-in-chief under Ben-Hadad, the king of Damascus. And he was a sworn enemy of Israel. And we read that in First. Kings 20. His story is told here in 2 Kings 5. And he was a great man with his master. He was very honorable and mighty in valor. But he was a leper. Now I know we have doctors in the house. And so I'm saying this up front. I read this. I read it on the internet. And you know what they say about the internet. Everything you read on the internet is true, right? But I read this, so you know, this is just a fundamental uh, review of leprosy. So you doctors, please have mercy on me, okay? Because I am no doctor, and neither am I the son of a doctor. But this is biblical leprosy. And if you, if you look into it, and these doctors know this, and you nurses probably do too, if you look into leprosy as 2019, They've named it, and they've given names to leprosy from uh, uh, important scientists from the uh, 1800s and 1900s, and there's always work, and there, there's many varieties of leprosy. What I'm talking about is the biblical leprosy, the leprosy that is spoken of in the Bible 2,000 years ago in the New Testament, and in this case, maybe 3,000 years ago in Syria. But this man was a leper, and we've already pointed out he was a very, very important man and a very worthy man. His king, King Ben-Hadad, he loved this man. He would do anything in the world for him because he had brought him great victories. And this is a very good man, but he's got a problem, doesn't he? And it's a problem that he can't fix. You know, we have problems in life sometimes that we can't fix. Only God can, can't we? We need to recognize those things. But here's this wonderful man, Naaman, 
and he's a leper. This was biblical leprosy. Biblical leprosy was considered a curse, and it did not kill necessarily, but neither did it seem to ever end. Instead, it lingered for years, causing the tissues to degenerate and deforming the body. Many have thought leprosy to be the disease of the skin, but it is better classified, however, as a disease of the, nerv- of the uh, nervous system because leprosy bacterium attacks the nerves. Its symptoms start in the skin and peripheral nervous system outside the brain in the spinal cord uh, and then spreads to other parts, such as the hands, the feet, the face, and the earlobes. Patients with leprosy experience disfigurement of the skin and bones and twisting of the limbs and curling of the fingers to form the characteristic claw hand. Facial changes include thickening of the outer ears, and the collapsing of the nose. If you've ever seen pictures, and I did as I was looking this up, they're, they're, they're horrible-looking pictures. Invariably, people with leprosy, they lose their nose completely. It all sets back in their head. Their earlobes get thick, terribly disfigured, and their face, in their skin, everything. It's a terrible, terrible disease, as we can imagine. It's a terrible disease today if you study and read about it, and they do have medicines that can help it. But you can only imagine 3,000 years ago what that was like to be a leper. And like I said, they considered it also, not, not only was it a horrible, horrible disease, but they considered it a curse as well. Second well, Kings 5, we're going to deal with this man that has leprosy. Um, he was highly esteemed uh, commander of the army of Syria in past raids. He had a captive that lived with him, and she was a, an, uh, a little Israelite girl. And uh, in past raids that he had that he had been on, this was one of the uh, the uh, one of the prizes. You know, to the victor goes the spoils. This was one of his prizes. He had in his household a little girl, probably a teenage girl from Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And uh, she informed her mistress that there was a prophet in Samaria, and that he would heal her husband Naaman. And so when we get to Second Kings five. We read, uh, in, look at verse 4 and 5. It says, And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus, says the girl who is in, from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go down, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten, and ten changes of clothing. So Ben uh, 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 Hadad had... had uh, given Naaman these great wealth, I and mean, you look at it, all this gold and silver, and ten new uh, changes of clothes, a wardrobe, and he said, you take this, and this would be to pay the king for the promised healing of the leprosy that uh, his servant Naaman had. But there was something lost in translation there, because what did the young Israelite girl say? There's a prophet in Samaria, and he can heal your servant Naaman, or my, your, my, my mistress's husband Naaman. That's not what the king did, though. You know, a lot of times, and, and I've been guilty of it, maybe you have too, we don't go through the proper channels. We might want to circumvent and go around. I don't know that he meant to, but instead of addressing the prophet, who's he addressing? The king of Israel. The king of Israel is not going to be able to heal anything, is he? It was the prophet. So the, that, that confusion will be uh, dealt with. 
Okay, uh, King Ben-Hadad sent lavish gifts to pay for the healing and a letter to the king, and the king was Joram of Israel at this time in Israel's history. And we'll read verses 6 and 7. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him from his leprosy. And it happened, verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks to quarrel with me. Well, King Joram was devastated, and he tore his clothes. He knew he couldn't do this. Only God could do this. This would only come about through God. And he saw this as what? He saw this as an invitation to war. He thought, well, he's asked the impossible, and when I can't produce the impossible, which I can't, he's going to want to go to war with me, and he's terrified. And then we get to, uh, and apparently, think about this, in a small-knit community, I'm sure that those people that were around the king that were in his palace, they saw this, didn't they? They saw him tear his clothes. They knew what this meant. And so the word has gotten out. There's a rumor going around that the king is extremely upset, and uh, he's tore his clothes. He's, he's, uh, he's uh, very upset, and uh, he didn't know what to do. And Elijah, the prophet, hears about it. And we see in verse 8 and 9, he says, So when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, said, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so, um, and let me stop there. So, he's basically telling him, Calm down. I can take care of this man. Send him to me, and God's going to prevail in this. And uh, so we see that Naaman, go ahead, and he comes, and he arrives at, the, at Elijah's home. Verse 9, it says, Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Well, it's quite, a, uh, it's quite a, a, a show. I mean, he shows up with men, servants. He shows up in a chariot. He shows up in great pomp to Elijah's house, and he has arrived with all these gifts and all this stuff, and he expects to be healed, doesn't he? Well, verse 10, something happens. And I told you, I, I'm bringing this back. This is an Old Testament story for a, a physical story for a spiritual uh, outcome. Think about when you were baptized. You know, many times, especially our young people, they're nervous and they have anxieties about walking down and, and maybe turning around and seeing all of you and confessing. Those of us that speak on a more regular basis and, and are, are more mature, we're more accustomed to speaking in a public sense or talking to, but our children sometimes are a little nervous about these things. Well, here's a man, he shows up, and he's expecting great things because who is he? Well, he's a very important person. He's mighty. He's a commander-in-chief. He's been very successful, too, in what he's doing, and he expects great things. What did you expect? What did you expect when you were when you came into salvation? What did you expect when the grace of God is extended to you? 
I don't know. I hope you weren't disappointed. I hope you don't think it was some little bitty thing. You know, we say from this pulpit, and we're quoting scripture when we say this, when someone comes and they want to obey the gospel and they want to have their sins washed away and they, they come into salvation, what do we say about the angels in heaven? They're rejoicing in heaven. There is great jubilation in heaven. It is a big thing in heaven that another one of God's creatures, another man or woman made in the image of God has come to that knowledge to bring their sins before God and have them washed away and forget and become a child of God. And I wonder sometimes if we don't realize how big a deal that is, how wonderful that is. Well, this man has a, 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 a fatal probably disease, one that is going to disfigure his body. It's going to take him out of the race. And he wants to be cured. And so he's shown up with great, prom, uh, great uh, pomp, and he is uh, great celebration. He's in front of Elijah's house, and he's come for his healing. And verse 10 says what? And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Well, there's that wonderful message, isn't it? But it didn't come about the way he thought it would. It didn't seem right to him. There should have been more fireworks. There should have been the, the beating of the drum. The, the musician should have come out. Whatever he anticipated, I don't know what it was, but he's let down. The man didn't even come out of his house to see him, but sent a messenger to him. And the messenger says what? Go to the Jordan River, dunk yourself seven times on the water, and you will be healed. Sometimes we forget what the healing process is, and we get caught up on the, the emotions you know, and we see this with, with people, and, I'm, and please don't get mad at me because weddings were a big thing in the, the Bible, but we see people spend tens of thousands of dollars on a wedding. They spend big money on a wedding, and that's wonderful. And if you're one of the guests and you get to wear the good clothes and drink the right things and eat the right cake, and it's a wonderful occasion, right? Then it was a huge occasion in the New Testament, and it is today. But what's most important? the marriage, the bonding, the coming of together, the, the two people becoming one. That's more important than any ceremony. Am I right? The marriage, that sacred marriage that God put together, that's far more important than the ceremony. This man wanted ceremony. But what he needed was healing. He's dying of a horrible disease, leprosy, and he needs to be healed of it. And his concept of it was great ceremony, great uh, things would uh, happen. Great words would be said. And Elijah just merely said, sent a messenger out to him and said, go and dip seven times in the Jordan and you will be healed. Well, have we seen this before? Yeah, we have. In Acts 8, there was an angel there and it instructed Philip, you go and join yourself to that chariot. And there was the unit. Why didn't the angel go? Because a wonderful thing was going to happen, right? This eunuch had the heart to obey God and to, to be ushered into the kingdom of God. But the angel didn't go. The angel sent Philip to go. You go and give the message. A man to a man. You go give the message. Right? Two chapters later in Acts 10, what do we see? A fabulous man. 
The Bible said he was a wonderful man, Cornelius. He gave alms to the poor. He prayed to God always. He was a wonderful man. But the angel didn't go to him and tell him how to be saved. He sent Peter from Joppa, didn't he? He said, you go and you tell him what to be saved, how to be saved. Well, here's a man that Elijah sends a messenger to and tells him how to be saved. Well, he's disappointed. It didn't happen the way he thought it would. And uh, let's, let's look at it. He says in verse 11, Naaman became furious. And he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, I will surely, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal this leprosy. See the great ceremony he expected? And guess how he feels now? He feels like he wasn't respected. He said, I wanted him to come to me. There should have been great ceremony from him and God. Great waving of the hands, etc. Well, here's the problem that he was going on his will. And when we feel that way, we're going on our will too. But here's the problem. He couldn't cure his leprosy. And we can't cure our great problem either, can we? Only God can. And... Um, you know, he, he, he understood this about himself. He was an important man. He was a proud man. He was a mighty man. He was loved. But his problem and disease could only be cured by obeying the word of God. You know, and in this instance, as I was putting this together, I thought about this. You know, if you have faith, I'm happy for you. I have faith. But there are those that don't have faith, and I'm so sad for them, because how you can't give someone faith. That's not something, you know, I can give you a dollar. I can give you this chapstick, but I can't give you faith. That's something you, that has to grow and has to become for yourself. And this man was going on his own will and not God's. He couldn't, he couldn't heal himself. And I thought about in this case, have you ever thought about what faith is? You know, there's a lot of, a lot of things where we try to describe faith. But here it seems like to me faith is like a pill. You have to take that pill, and we all do it. Have, we've got a split and headache, and we take a pill that's going to cure that headache. But what do we have to do? We have to wait. We have to give it time. You've got a split and headache, and you take two Tylenols. Your, your headache's probably over, but it's not going to be over right then. It's going to take a little while for it to kick in, isn't it? And that's how faith is. Sometimes we have faith, but sometimes we have to wait a while to see it run its course. We have to wait a while to see the cure that comes from having our faith. You know, I've, I've talked to people like this. I, I, I talked to a young man. I was a young man, and he was a friend of mine, and I studied with him. And if you've ever studied the gospel with people, and I know many of you do, you know, there's an exciting time when you're, uh, when you're uh, studying the Bible with someone, especially when you see them start asking the right questions. And they start, they start making that move, and you think, okay, I'm getting somewhere here. I'm getting, they're starting to understand this. I want them to say, and I was studying with this young man, and I was having that feeling. I was saying, he's getting it. He's getting it. We're going we're gonna to go with this. And right in the middle, of, I'll never forget, he made a big sigh. And he pushed the Bible away. And I said, what is it, Mason? I just, I, I just can't do this. I said, what do you mean? And he said, these are just words. These are just words that men wrote down. I don't know if they're inspired. I don't, I don't know all that. And I said, what would it take for you to, to come around? And he said, God would have to appear to me. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, he has, but it's in here. And he said, I, I, I need more than that. 
You know, the agnostic says that too. He says, I've read this, and I've looked around, and I need more. I need. It's like an investor. You know, you go to a banker or you go to an investor, and he looks at what you've got, and he says, I see it, but I need more collateral. I need a little more collateral than this before I can jump out there like that. Before I can invest fully into this, I need more tangible things. And that's what he's saying here. That's what we say when we can't live by faith. And that's what he's saying here. This isn't enough. A messenger boy comes out of the house. The prophet doesn't even come out, and he tells me to go do this. And, and, he, and he leaves in a rage. He went down there to hear some good news, and he leaves in a rage. And let's continue to read. Verse 12, he says, Are not the Havana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he returned, and he went in a rage. You know, those rivers he mentioned were... Uh, they're clear. They're pretty. I've seen pictures of them. They're clear. Uh, Jim has recently gotten back from uh, Jerusalem in that area, and he showed me a picture of the uh, Jordan. It was muddy. Muddy and had uh, hyssops and weeds growing right up to the edge, and you picture these other rivers as clean banks and real pretty. He's looking. At, he's not living by faith, is he? Because in, in the reality, if you want to just be in reality, what is dipping seven times in the Jordan River going to do? Nothing. But through faith, it's going to do what? It's going to heal him, okay? Verse 13 epitomizes this story. And I want us to look at it. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? You know, we've talked about that here. You know, uh, the staff that were here uh, during the week, and we talk about things, you know, if God asked you, if God, if it was required of us today to come, every time we meet together as Christians, if we were required to wear a toga and sandals, would you do it? I would in a minute. If we were supposed to wear a silly-looking hat that made us look stupid, but that's what uh, brought us close to God, I'd have the biggest one on that you could have. Because that doesn't, it, it's whatever God asks because... Have you thought about this? Don't forget what? We have a terrible disease. He forgot he had a terrible disease. He, did, he, he didn't understand. How, he wanted it to come about this certain way, and certain ceremonies, but he forgot what? He's got a terrible disease. It's eating him alive. And people today, if, if salvation doesn't come because you want more ceremony or you want more, uh, more fantastic things, don't forget about what? Our terrible disease. Well, he had. Yeah, but this, this verse 13, I guess, epitomizes this because it made sense to him. These common sense servants of him. They said, Father. They were very respectful to him. Father, if he had asked you something and done to do this great, uh, great work and this great thing, you would have done it. But he just simply asked you to go and wash. Will you not do that? Well, I said we'd look at some antitypes. Let's look at some antitypes. That's certainly one. Now, this story was what? About cleansing a man of leprosy. We know that he went on to do that, didn't he? You see in verse 15, he went and he dipped seven times. He baptized himself seven times in the Jordan River. And it said he came up and his flesh was like a child's. 
Not only, not only was the disease gone, but it was restored. Those digits that had fallen off his hand, possibly, or his nose, those divots that were in there, they were restored, and his skin was like a child. A great miracle had happened for him. And this story, of course, is about the healing of leprosy. It's not about salvation, but it's an antitype to us of salvation. And there are other antitypes as well. What is an antitype? Well, an antitype is something that is foreshadowed by a type or a symbol. And in this case, as a New Testament event, prefigures in the Old Testament. Okay? And here is one right here. 1 Peter 3, 20 and 25. Let me read it and then let me explain it. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. This is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of, God, uh, of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, Noah's ark, and that saving of eight souls is an antitype, it says to baptism. How so? Well, what was above them? Water, pure water. God had opened up the heavens, opened up the depths of the earth, and water was above them, and water was below them, and they're in an ark the vessel which saved them, and they're consumed and inundated with water. And he said, it's like baptism. It saves you today. What did it do for them? What did it literally do for Noah and those seven other people? What did that water and ark do? It saved them. It saved them. And he said, what does baptism do to you? It saves you also. Another antitype, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Well, he's got two stories going on here. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 10. One of all, he tells about their, their exodus from Egypt. He said they left Egypt and then they came to what? The Red Sea. There's an ocean in front of you and an army behind you. You're between a rock and a hard spot. What are you going to do? What followed them during the day? A cloud and a pillar at night of fire. So this cloud above them, water above them, and then they passed through the Red Sea. And he said you were baptized into the Red Sea, or you were baptized in the water, you were baptized into Moses. What was he the Savior? He's using this old story that they had been very familiar with. Very familiar with. Baptism isn't something new. Peter says in, in, uh, in, in Noah's days that that was an antitype of baptism. Don't you see it? And here and he says, you see when they left Egypt and they went through the sea? What happened to the enemies behind them? They drowned in the sea, did He said this was an antitype. Do you remember that? And he explains it. Then he's got another one there that he explains. He explains the leaving of Egypt. The cloud above and the water and passing through the sea. How it was like baptism. And then he talks about the spiritual food. The spiritual food and the spiritual drink that they drank. And that is, of course, you know, the manna. God sent manna every day and they ate it. Unleavened bread. And the rock he speaks of here is the rock of Meribah where... Moses, they were starving to death. They had to drink or they were going to die. That's at the point they were at. And he struck the rock and the water came out. And he said the rock would represent who? Christ. And they drank from Christ. They drank from this water and they lived. 
And he said this was an antitype to spiritual food. What is the spiritual food of today? We ate it today, right here. We ate of this, ate of this bread, the unleavened bread, which was his body. If you listen to the prayer, we ate of his, the fruit of the vine, which is the, his blood that was represented. It's an antitype for that, right? The spiritual food he speaks of there was the man and the water from the rock, which is Christ. And then the antitype of this was, like I said, the Lord's Supper. The fruit of the vine, the unleavened bread, his body, his blood, Luke, tw- uh, Luke 22, verses 19 through 20. The inspired writers of the New Testament constantly use these antitypes. Foreshadows and symbols to illustrate God's salvation through the means of baptism for salvation and the entrance into the kingdom of God. But uh, then is now, many reject it, don't they? They did, they rejected it then, and people reject it now. You know, in Matthew 3... Verses 1 through 7, we read about John. In, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And if you look at those passages in verse 5 and 6, then all of Jerusalem and all of Judea uh, and all uh, in the region around came to Jesus and went out and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would not, verse 7. They didn't do that. They came questioning. They didn't come obeying. And then we have another example, John 6, verses 53 and 54. Jesus talking about this passage is Jesus, the bread of life. But he says some things in there that that were anti-type. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless that you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. And verse 66 says, from that time on, many of his disciples went back and followed him no more. Now, did Jesus ever command that we eat his physical flesh? No. Were were anybody at any time in history required to drink his physical flesh? blood no and so it's an antitype it's a two-way antitype one and most scholars say this and i see it i see the lord's supper very much in this but i think primarily that it's that it's talking about his life i'm going to give my life for the church i'm going to give my life for the sins of the world i'm going to give this body and i'm going to give this blood and i'm going to die for the sins of the world but you are too That's the part that they turn and they walk with him no more. They might not have understood, just like as we read these scriptures, they seem hard to understand us unless we study a little further. But what he's saying is, I'm going to give everything for the kingdom. It's going to cost me everything. And it's going to cost you that too if you're really going to be in the kingdom. You're going to have to die to your sins. You're going to have to to tell yourself no instead of telling yourself yes. And then, of course, it also has the antitype of what? That... The Lord's Supper, too, eating the bread and eating his fruit. Because guess what? If you're not willing, have you ever thought about this? That two plus two equals four, doesn't it? If you're not willing to die to sin, if you're not willing to change your life, if you're not willing to look unto him as that great example, because that's what he did, if you're not willing to do that yourself, then chances are you're not going to be here eating the Lord's Supper either, are you? Because you've chosen not to do this. They chose, these were his disciples. These were people that had followed him, and they chose to follow him no more. He uses these to foreshadow the things to come. 
Well, we've looked at the Pharisees. My time's running short. We've looked at the Pharisees and Sadducees, and we saw many of Jesus' disciples as well decided that they didn't like this. They were like Naaman. They thought it ought to be different. They thought it ought to come with ceremony. It ought to be more important than that. But they forgot about this terrible disease that they had, didn't they? You know, they, uh, we see Jesus having no sin set the greatest example of all. What did he do in Matthew, thir- uh, Matthew 3? He too was baptized. John even said, I need to be baptized with you. And Jesus said, permit it so. He set the greatest example. He had no sin. He had nothing to be sorry for, but yet he set for us a wonderful example to obey the gospel. Why can't we be like that slave girl? Why can't we be like that little uh, Israeli captive girl that told her mistress what? With God, there's healing. If we had the faith like she did, she knew that this man had an incurable disease, but if he'd go see that prophet, he could cure him because God's powerful. Why can't we be like that and have that kind of faith? Why can't we have the faith of those common sense servants that we're naming? And stopping them, they were very respectful. Maybe that's what he didn't get from the messenger of, uh, of Elisha. Because they called him father. They said, Father, listen to us. If he'd asked you to have done something big and something grand, wouldn't you have done it? He simply asked you to go and wash and be clean. That's what God's asked. God's not making it hard for us today. He says, come in faith. Confess your sins. With your mouth, make the confession unto salvation that Jesus is Lord. And submit and have your sins washed away. Such a simple, simple thing to ask. Such a hard thing to do, isn't it? Because I, I, I don't, it, it really boils down to two things. We either believe it or we don't. Lack of faith. Are we expected it to be different? We expect it to be something bigger than that. Well, it is something big. It's something so big that the angels in heaven rejoice over it. It's what the end of the age is waiting on when... The, Chances are when the last person on this earth will no longer obey the gospel, the earth will probably end. The Lord even said at one time, will I find any faith when I come back? Such a simple request, and yet we can't do that. You know, Paul says something very sad in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. He would say this simple thing, this wonderful thing of the gospel that saves men's souls, changes men's lives. He said it became a stumbling block to the Jews. And it was just pure foolishness to the Gentile world. Well, there's the lesson. Our time is about up. There's the lesson this morning. A man thought it ought to be different. Finally, someone that had some sense that he listened to came to him and said, why can't you just simply do what it is? And he came up out of that muddy river Jordan after the seventh time doing exactly what God said. And his skin and his body was restored to that of a child. He went away, no doubt, rejoicing. He had to change his mind, change his attitude about what salvation was. This morning, I know that there's some here that have not obeyed the gospel. I don't know why. You, you probably know why. I don't. But I want to remind you in the most loving way that I can. No condemnation in this. I don't say this in a mean way or mean spirit. I say it in a loving way. Don't forget about the horrible disease that you have. We've all had to come to that, haven't we? That we've got a disease that no man, no doctor can cure. No medicine can cure it. 
It's called sin, and it separated us from God. And God doesn't want you to live. God wants to forgive you. He wants to see it no more in your life. And the way he can do it is to do what he's asked you to do, and that's come and have your sins washed away. Can we help you this morning? I want to say something. I look in the house this morning, and I see people visiting with us, and we're certainly glad you're here. And I want you to stick around. Please stick around. The ladies have got something for you. And let us shake your hand. Let us get to know you. Let us uh, meet you, if you would. Uh, allow us to do that. Are you subject to the gospel? We're ready and able to help you if you need that help this morning. So would you come as together we stand and sing?